0: was one of the very first who came before all of us. He will have achieved 29 years of continuous sobriety next February. Almost my age of
1: 39.
0: Which makes him the oldest living member of AA in length of sobriety. He was the first member of AA in Cleveland, Ohio, helped organize the first AA group in Cleveland, and, or rather did organize the first AA group in Cleveland and helped organize many others. And that was actually the first AA group as they broke away from the Oxford group, which in studying the history of our great program, you know that there was a forerunner of AA, was the Oxford Group, and Clarence was the person who broke away from the Oxford Group and started the first group of AA as we know it now. He's one of the first 40 members of Alcoholics Anonymous. He is one of the men who helped write the book. So if there's any of you here who want to rewrite the book, he's the fellow to see. And his story is one of the stories in the book from which all of us have drawn great hope and great strength and that wonderful warm feeling of a new life. And he's got a very hearty laugh and I'm sure that we're going to be delighted with uh, an excellent message tonight. So without any further ado... It is my pleasure to introduce, all the way now from St. Petersburg, Florida, one of our grand champions of our wonderful program, Clarence. Yes, Clarence.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm very anxious to hear what this fellow's got to say. Well, first of all, I do wish to thank the committee for inviting me here. I have never been to Northern California. In fact, I have never had any connection with any AA function here in California except one meeting I went to about six years ago in San Diego with Jim Burwell. And that's really a pleasure, and I'm having a real blast here. I've made some wonderful new friends. I met some old ones here. It's one thing about AA, when you get around, and stick around here, no matter where you go, you're gonna run into someone you know you can't get away with anything anymore. Here I old friends of mine from Cleveland, the Dewey Species and and Johnny Hilliards, and, and then some folks from down in Florida, the Lillian and some of them are all here, friends of mine. Doesn't make any difference where we go, we have them. Why, uh I do thank you for inviting me here to take part in this wonderful program. Uh, As you heard, my name is Clarence Snyder, and I come from St. Petersburg. For the benefit of anyone here who belongs to the press, the radio, or the films, that name Snyder is spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R. I have always been about as anonymous as a barber pole. (laughs) I never seem to be able to hide anything anyway, so I have nothing to hide from anyone. So much for that. You know, looking over a crowd like this, it's, it's really a thrill, and I never seem to get over it. I'm invited by people to come around and talk to various meetings, various places, and this always gives me a tremendous thrill. I look at a crowd like this. They're all dressed up and all shined up. Look wonderful. Wonderful looking crowd. And when I look at a crowd such as this, I always think of one of my favorite rummy stories. I'm not much at telling, rummy, uh, at telling stories at all, but I do have a few which I enjoy. And I think one of my favorites is a story of about Jerry, the town drunk. I might call him Vern, maybe, but his name really was Jerry. And this fellow had been drunk as long as anyone in town could remember. And he was always dirty, disheveled, unshaven, and his hind end was out of his breeches, and his bare feet were on the ground. He was always drunk, many, many years this went on and on and on, and eventually the day came when Jerry finally turned up his toes and died. We all do. He did. And this created a problem in the town. They had to have a burial for him, so someone had to take responsibility for it, and someone did. So they went around to the village barber, and he offered to shave him and clean him up. One of the tailors fixed him up a suit. Someone gave him a shirt and a necktie, and they got him all spruced up, got his hair cut and shaved and the whole thing. And the undertaker, the local undertaker, offered to bury him, and then they had to find a preacher to preach the funeral sermon, and they had a little job doing that, but they finally got one. So the funeral was held, and the whole town turned out to attend this funeral. And this preacher got up, and he just didn't know quite what to say. He, so he got up and he said, Well, friends, he says, we're gathered here together to, to the last rites of Jerry. He says, We all knew him. We knew him for what he was. He says, I don't know just what to say about him. I don't know just how to begin or what I might say. But he says, There's one thing I'd like you all to do. He says, I'd like everyone here to come up and take a look at Jerry and see how good he looks since he quit drinking. This morning, or this afternoon, rather, this morning to me, I never got up till 11 o'clock, I was listening to Dr. Lund make his talk here, and he, during his talk, he made several references to miracles. I always like to talk about the miracle of AA, and this is a miracle, and I think every person here is a miracle and a result of a miracle. I think about the time how I arrived in this fellowship. As you heard during my introduction, I came to this fellowship before it was known as AA. There was no AA, but I came to it. This is rummy-like. And the mathematical chances of my being here are so remote they couldn't be figured out. By any one of these newfangled machines they have. I want to tell you something about how I got here. And from that point on, maybe I can talk something about this program, talk about my ideas of it. Someone mentioned to me that they have a clock up here. I don't know how to tell time. Uh, I intend to spend the first hour and 45 minutes talking about myself. <laughs> and then I will talking for another hour about the program. Well, we're not going anywhere, anyway. Why, here's what happened to me. Many years ago, I wound up a hopeless, helpless alcoholic. I was married to a gal and her family. (laughs) And this was some family, believe me, they used to have family conferences and I was never invited to them. I was generally the subject under consideration. Several times they threw me bodily out of my own home. This actually happened to me. So finally the day came that they gave me my very, very last chance to stay home. And this was predicated upon the idea that I should go to work for my wife's brother. Well, let me say this right at the beginning. I have always been against work. Being sober all these years has not changed that attitude either. (laughs) However, this brother-in-law had a truck. He had one of these long-distance outfits. He ran merchandise between Cleveland and New York City, and I was supposed to hire on as his helper. Well, I've never ridden on a truck, let alone drive one, and the very thought of it was petrifying. But I had to go along with this gag because it was either that or I'm out of the nest. So I agreed to do this. By this time, I might add, all of my clothes had been sold. Everything of value that I owned was gone. And all my earthly possessions consisted of a shirt, a pair of trousers, a pair of shoes, a hat, and a sweater. This was my wardrobe. And I went, started out on this trip with my brother-in-law, and it was the beginning of winter. Everything happens to me in the lousiest of weather, and this was no exception. We started for New York, and he didn't know it, but I had a dollar in some sense secreted around my person in change. I had a little dough. (laughs) And he drove and drove and drove, but he finally, to make a long story short, the following night we got to Albany, New York, and he gave out. He couldn't drive anymore. So he was going to take a nap. He had one of those sleeper cabs, where one sleeps on the seat and the other fellow sleeps up above. He had fixed this place up above for me and cleaned it up nice and put a curtain in the window even. It was nice. Clean blankets, everything. And I looked behind and see that big thing following down that trailer, and I was really petrified at this thing. Twenty-some tons of merchandise in it. So I had to spend the time up there, but when he talked out, I... Got away from him. I told him, "Well, we're in Albany. This is a capital of New York. I want to go down to the capital buildings." <laughs> well, the dear boy went to sleep, and I went my merry way. I can still remember two events of that thing. The first place I got into it was too rich for my blood, and I ran down the street and I got into a place that is more fitting to a man of my estate and I found an angel in there and I was throwing him in like this and away I went before anyone knew I was gone I started back for the truck and of course I hadn't had a drink for several days and boy this stuff hit me all at once and when I got in the truck and climbing up I stepped on his face <laughs> well to make a long story short that was the end of my job I hadn't even started on it yet He drove me into New York City, drove down to the waterfront, and he threw me out. He left me there. says this is the end of the line, he wrote his sister and told her what he'd done with that no good so-and-so. He had another sister in New York, in Yonkers. I I knew where she lived because when I was married, we went there on our honeymoon. This was a very clannish family, as I mentioned. And so I went out to see Virginia... Virginia had visited us many, many times and lived with us many, many times. And I thought Virginia certainly owed me a favor, so I went out and thought maybe I might get some help from her. I can only remember that she used to live up on top of a hill, but I didn't go up on a hill. I went down a hill, and I got in that Italian neighborhood down there, and I got mixed up with a lot of very interesting people slopping a lot of Dago Red. And you know what happened? The only thing I remember, I got up to her place and I can remember one thing, I was rolling around on the floor with her two kids and I was boiled. And She took a dim view of this and she put me in her car and drove me down in New York to the waterfront where her brother had thrown me out and she did likewise. <laughs> now get the picture, I was hundreds of miles away from home, I didn't have one friend in the world, I shall never forget this feeling. I didn't have one friend, one person in this world who cared whether I was alive or dead. I didn't have a dime to my name, no clothes, no wardrobe, no nothing, and I didn't know where to go. And I'm in New York. Well, I existed in New York for a long time. I know it was a good long time because how long, I can't tell you, but I know the calendar went around because it was lousy weather again when I got back to Cleveland. I didn't keep track of time, I wasn't going anyplace, but I had, I kept out of trouble there. I'm not going into the story of what I did in New York, but there's a lot of interesting things happened to me while I was there. The main thing that happened was this, and I do nothing about this. After my visit to Virginia's home in Yonkers, one day she had the family doctor out there, about one of the kids, I guess, and they got to talking about drinking. This seems to be a favorite subject in most societies. And she told her family doctor about this drunken brother-in-law hers, who used to be such a swell guy once, and what a drunken bum he is now, and told her about my visit there. And this doctor says, you know, that's odd. He says, I had a drunken brother-in-law like that once myself. And he met some kind of a cult. (laughs) And... He spends all of his time trying to sober up drunks, and he's staying sober doing that. And this doctor further told Virginia, he says, you know, there's a doctor, a medical doctor down in Akron, Ohio, who spends all of his time sobering up drunks, and if your brother-in-law ever gets back there to Cleveland, you might send him down to Akron, maybe this doctor can fix him. This is taking place all beknownst to me. People are always doing things behind my back. Eventually, I got back to Cleveland, and I tried to get in the nest, and the little woman met me on the front porch. And I remember that it was lousy weather, and there was snow on the ground. The one thing I can remember about it, she still had the screen doors up. And I pointed out that she needed a man about the house to take care of details like that. But she said she didn't need one that badly. (laughs) So, but I didn't get in. But she told me about this doctor in Akron and asked me if I'd like to go down and meet him. Well, there was nothing I could lose by going down and meeting this doctor who was fixing drunks, so I told her I'd be glad to. So she was a kind soul. She took me down to the bus depot, and she bought me a one-way ticket to Akron and put me on the bus. And that's how I met my sponsor, Dr. Bob. Eventually, Doc put me in a hospital, a city hospital in Akron, Ohio, And that's how I came to this fellowship. A little history about this. This was not known as AA at that time. This was a meeting of the Oxford Movement. I spent a week in that hospital. And I'll tell you a few things how I was in that day. I weighed 130 pounds. I don't know when I had eaten. But I know I had been drunk for a number of years. I was not a periodic drinker. I was drunk all the time. And when I wound up in that hospital, this was something I can remember when I went down there, I Doc had told me to meet him there one morning, and I went down there. And here's what happened to me. I, I got into Akron that morning that he that I promised I'd come down and I walked out to City Hospital from that bus depot, and it was zero weather in February. And when I walked into that hospital, got into that lobby, I passed out, count out. And I didn't... I came to, I was up in a room, and there was a lot of activity around. People were very busy. I seemed to be the object of curiosity there, all kinds of people there, and nurses and other people. I don't know who they all were. But I came to, and do you know the first thing I saw when I came to? Over on that sh- window sill was a bottle of rub, as a rubby dub. And I thought, oh boy, I came down here to quit drinking, but I had a horror of ever getting DTs. And I would seen fellas, and fellas I had drank with, and several of them died when 'em, And I didn't want those things. And being an everyday drinker, I didn't get DTs because I never gave them a chance to get in there and play with me. <laughs> and I thought, here I'm quitting. This is when I'm going to be in trouble. And if I should happen to hear the bells ringing or anything like that, there is my answer in that rub right on the windowsill. And I knew there'd be a bottle of that on every probably in every room on that floor. So this gave me courage. The nurse came along. She had a tray with two things on it, a big slug of booze and a big slug of something else, which was Peraldehyde. And she says, Mr. Snyder, Mr., I hadn't been called that a long time, I still remember this. She says, we have some medicine for you. She says, you take this nice big drink of whiskey and then you can take this medicine afterward and you're going to be fine. So I got on my hind legs, and I informed that gal that I came down there to quit drinking, not to drink any of her booze. i look had my eye on that bottle all the time, I'm talking to her. But I never drank that, I didn't take that sober enough drink, I didn't take those knockout drops, and I've never had a drink to this day. I never touched their alcohol. But what happened to me? What happened? Why can a man, or any person, be drunk all these years? and be obsessed with the idea of drinking and all of a sudden like that quit why is this you ever asked yourself this question why do people walk into this group after they've had a life of debauchery and drunkenness disgrace hurt injury and just like that everything changes everything changes why there's a reason for this It certainly isn't because we understand this program or we've absorbed it or are working it. I don't believe that at all. But I'll probably go into that a little later. But here's what happened to me. I'm in that hospital for a week. After I'm in there a couple of days, men start coming in to see me, the men who had preceded me in this way of life. All the alcoholics came in. Now, the Oxford Movement was not made up of alcoholics. The alcoholics were in the minority. They're mostly other people who are trying to learn to live a good type of life uh, according to Christian principles. And uh, the alcoholics are in there by sufferance more than anything else. But the, uh, the people in the Oxford Group accepted the alcoholics as a challenge. They thought they could fix anybody. They got along fine till they got into these alkies. They even had to change the name of the Oxford group at the time the Alkies got through with them. They call it moral rearmament now. But I got into this thing and these fellows come in and tell me their stories. I was in there a week. Every man came in there, he wound up his talk to me by saying that telling me that he had the answer to my drinking problem, but none of them would give me that answer. They wouldn't tell me what it was. I was expecting some kind of an operation or something. I was in a hospital under the care of a medical doctor. I, it's logical to believe. So they wouldn't tell me what this answer was. So I'm in there a week. I didn't eat all the time I was in there. I can remember this because the last day I was in there, Paul Stanley came in. Paul's dead now, as all those fellas are. They're all gone. And Paul could talk. You You think you've heard guys that can run off at the mouth. This guy really could go. Paul had been raised a Catholic, and he got mixed up in Christian science somewhere along the line. Then he got into unity, and he got into some kind of Buddhism deal, and then he wound up in the Oxford group. And if you don't think that this guy had something to say, you're crazy. He came in at breakfast time, and he ate my breakfast for me. (laughs) He was still there at lunch, and he got my lunch. I did get the dessert. There was peaches for dessert. I got the peaches. He got the rest of it. And along about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Doc came in. Doc Smith, Dr. Bob to you. And Paul left. He missed my supper. But, Doc, here's what happened to me. Doc had been in every day, and this day he came in and he sat on the foot of my bed, and any of you folks who ever had the great pleasure of meeting my sponsor will remember him as a very tall, angular man, and he had fingers on him this long, and I swear he could look holes right through you. He could do this. He had a penetrating gaze. I was half scared of the guy myself. Anyway, he came and sat on the foot of my bed, a very most unprofessional posture, and he looked at me for a few minutes, and he said to me this, I can still remember this so well. He says, well, young fellow, he says, what do you think of this by now? He used to call me young fellow all the time. Uh, never anything but young fellow unless he was disturbed with me. Then he'd call me Clarence. But when he called me Clarence, I'm in trouble. But when he called me young fellow, I'm in good grace with him. So he said, young fellow, what do you think of this by now? I says, I think this is wonderful. All these fellas come to see me. They don't know me from a bale of haven. They're all telling me their stories. I know they're rummies. But they all tell me one thing, Doc. I'm puzzled. They all tell me they have the answer to my problem. But nobody tells me what this answer is. What do I have to do? What are you going to do to me? He looked at me. He says, well, he says, young fellow, we don't know about you. We're not too sure about you. <laughs> you're pretty young. We don't know if you're ready yet. Not already At 130 pounds, I hadn't worked in three years. I was absolutely unemployable. You want, you want me to tell you how unemployable I was? I never thought about this. I was talking about it one time. Some people were laughing about it. They thought it was hilarious. I didn't think... I never realized it was so silly. But you know, when I was drinking, all these jug buddies of mine were on WPA. This was way back. And they were getting 18 bucks a week on WPA, and do you know they wouldn't take me? (laughs) I couldn't make it. I couldn't even stand there and hold a flag. I have nursed a resentment toward Roosevelt ever since. Yes, sir. Boy. And you know something else? My wife was always very interested in my going to work. And you know what her job was? She was head of the mail department in a, an employment agency. And she couldn't get me a job. <laughs> of all people who were interested, and she'd lie like anything to get me any place. She, she couldn't make it even. I was strictly unemployable. I was sick. I weighed 130 pounds. I was whipped. I was done. So Doc sits there and tells me he don't know if I'm ready yet. I didn't think I was going to get into this deal at all. What did I have to do to get ready? (laughs) He said to me... He says, all these young fellas he'd had before... And I was 35 years old then. Now, figure real fast. I'll tell you real quick. I'll be 64 in December, so... He said, all these young fellows we had before were all screwballs. They're all nuts. And uh, they couldn't do anything with them. They belonged in an asylum. So they weren't too sure about me. I had to convince them that I'd had enough. And I wanted to do something about this. Apparently, I did convince him. So he says, all right, young fellow, I'll give you the answer to this thing. Boy, I was relieved then. I says, fine. He says, get out of that bed. Yeah, what, what, What for? He says, get on your knees. He says, why I go on my knees? He says, you're going to pray. I says, who's going to pray? He says, you're going to pray. I says, I don't know anything about praying. He says, well, I don't suppose you do, he says, but I'll pray and you can repeat what I say after me and that'll do for this time. So out of the bed, out of my bones, out of the floor of that hospital, I felt like a fool. But it didn't kill me. As you can see, I'm still here. And he uttered a prayer... I don't know what it was, I couldn't tell you. But I repeated it after him. And after I'd concluded why, he shook hands with me. He said, young fellow, you're gonna be all right. See? And he carried me to a meeting that night. And this was the meeting of the Oxford group. I can still remember first meeting, some of the details of that meeting. The format of our meeting was entirely different than it is today. It was in a home. It was in the home of T. Henry Williams. They were not alcoholics. Most people there were not. It was a beautiful home. Oriental rugs on the floor, grand piano, and a lot of knick-knacks and antiques around and beautiful things in the home. I can remember that because I'd made a metal note of some of the smaller things. <laughs> and, well, future reference, you know. So anyway, I didn't take anything. Not that I didn't think about it. But I attended this meeting, and it kind of frightened me. One thing's kind of frightened me there that I wasn't prepared for. I met these men who had come to visit me in the hospital, but there was a lot of ladies there, a lot of women. They scared me. They don't anymore. I got over that. That's one blessing of AA. But this did frighten me a bit at the time. Everyone seemed to be related or something. They were all having a good time, and, and some of them got pretty sentimental, and some of them got pretty emotional during the meeting. But I knew what these men were doing there, but I couldn't figure out what all these women were doing around there. And I only concluded the worst. So I started picking out which ones I thought were running places and what ones were working. This is the way a Rummy will work, I don't know. I'm wrong on every score. But that was my first meeting, and I went to meetings every Wednesday night in Akron, Ohio, for fifteen months. I missed two of them in that time when I couldn't get through on account of weather. And I went down there all weekends to be with those people. They were the only friends I had. After all these these years of drinking, I had lost every friend I had. Nobody cared one thing about me, family or otherwise, and these were the first people Whoever loved me. I just couldn't keep away from them. I've been around here a good many years. I still don't keep away from these people. And I hope I never shall. One thing that bugs me is how a person can come to this great fellowship, receive the blessings, so he gets here, and then walks away and leaves it this is something something to be considered I never did I was trained differently in AA and I think the people who came in around that time and shortly after I came in were trained differently because they still go and they still have enthusiasm for this I am still an amateur in this fellowship I have never become a pro and as an amateur I reserve the right to criticize any bloody thing I want to in AA And I do. AA is different than it used to be, and it has to be different, I suppose. I don't say all these differences are good. Some of them stink, but some of them are good. I don't go along with a lot of this jazz that they have in AA today, because I think it's killing people. I think AA is a very simple thing. In this miracle of AA, why, ask yourself sometime, why are you here? Why were you chosen to be here? Why was I chosen to be here? When down through the ages of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history, there has been alcoholism. Think about this. Alcoholism, you read about it in the Bible. You read about it in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis. Read about Noah, how potted he got. He, uh, who else but a rummy would ever pull a stunt that Noah pulled? Who would ever think of that? And why didn't he swat one of those flies? There's some terrific rummy stories in the Bible. Terrific rummy stories. Gee, I I love to talk about some of these stories. They did me so much good when I came in. We didn't have this big book that we have now. We didn't have this literature. We didn't have these meeting places. We didn't have all this that we have today. So we had to formulate our plan through reading things from the good book. And I'd read these stories, and they'd read them to me. And they're, they're great stories. And I'd always be a character in this story, usually the hero. Read that story. You know that one of the greatest rummy stories in the world is a story of the Jericho Road, the Good Samaritan. Just think of that story. Let's talk about that a minute just for fun. I hadn't intended to, but I, I have to do this. Here's a fella. Laying there, he'd been rolled and beat up and robbed. They even took his clothes, everything. He's lying there drunk. How do I know he's drunk? Well, this priest comes along and he smells him. He turned over and went on the other side of the road and went by. Didn't want to be around him. It's no affair of his. Some drunk got rolled. So what? He shouldn't have been getting drunk in the first place. So he ignores the guy. A Levite comes along. He does likewise. This poor stiff, he's laying there all beat up and bleeding. He crosses the road, goes on the other side. So long comes this other fellow, this good Samaritan, they call him. You know who he was? He was a traveling salesman. He was, and he was a rummy. He was a first member of AA. And I'll tell you why I know this. This fellow, he comes along and he sees this poor stiff laying there. What does he do? He goes over there, he binds up his wounds, cleans them up a little bit... And he put him on his form of conveyance, whatever it was, and he took him to an inn. Now here's how I know that this guy was a rummy, and I know this other fellow was too, both of them were. He puts this fellow in this inn, and he says to this innkeeper, he says, here's some money. See, he wouldn't give it to the drunk, he'd give it to the innkeeper. <laughs> he says, here's some money, take care of this guy. And now, here's how I know he's a traveling salesman. He says, If you need any more, when I come back through again, I'll pay you whatever is due. So he's a traveling salesman. He's traveling that territory. And he picks this guy up, and he wouldn't trust him with the dough. So this is an AA call, pure and simple. Great AA story. One of the greatest stories, in AA stories in the Bible is that story of the prodigal son. Terrific story. Just look at that kid. You know what he did? In those days, the boys, of course, they inherited what was coming to them from the old man when he died. They split the inheritance up when the old man died. But this kid, the rummy, he couldn't wait. Does this sound familiar? He couldn't wait till the old man died. He wants his right now. Just like every rummy, you can't wait till tomorrow for anything. It has to be done yesterday already. So he wants it right now So he aggravates the old man till the old man gives him his portion of the inheritance And away he goes And what did he do? Does this sound familiar? He says he went out into a far land And he blew the whole bundle in riotous living Doesn't it say that in a good book? Sure did So he blew the whole bundle What happened to him? What happened to us? he wound up out there working for some guy he's in there working on a farm there's a famine hits and he can't get anything to eat and he says I would eat of the husks of the hogs he has nothing he says my father and all of them have plenty back where I came from but here I am desolate he, here's what he said he, kept, he came to his extremity just like you and I did but here's what's important what he saying he said just what you and I said He says, I will arise and go to my father. See? And that's what he did. But he arose. He didn't lay there. He arose. And he went to his father. And what happened? Did his father wait for him? No, it says in the good story there, it says, his father saw him coming afar off, and he ran to meet him, and he fell upon his neck and kissed him. He says, my son who is dead is alive. He says, let us have music. Kill the fatted calf. Let us rejoice. So what happened? The Al-Anon's come in on this now. (laughs) He said they had a party. They have all this music playing. And the other brother, he'd stayed home all this time, the Al-Anon guy, (laughs) minding his business, doing what the old man told him to do, no imagination. no fun but he was a dutiful son and he minded his own business and did what he's supposed to do so here's what he does he gets his nose out of joint he says what goes on here all the music what's this for the old man says my son who was dead has come back he's alive the kid says how come you never had a blast for me like that isn't that the way life is I like to hear what the old man told him? You read it. Okay, this is, these are great Rummy stories. How did I ever get off on that? I was talking about alcoholism and the age of it and how long it's been going on. You read about it in ancient history and mythology all the way down. And you and I, out of a, all these millions of people, a few thousand of us have had this privilege of being introduced to this tremendous fellowship. There must be a reason. If you can't find any other reason for it, why not be very thankful for that? Don't ever, don't ever, ever fail to be thankful. This thing of forgetting to be thankful makes more people go back into a life that they had before than anything else. Now, this program of ours is absolutely foolproof. If we accept this program as it is and apply it, it's easy. If this program is not easy for you, take my word for, for it, you are doing it wrong. Does that sound simple enough to you? Now, I'll tell you why. You heard a lot of dissertations about this program, and Barbara read the program tonight of Twelve Steps, and we've all listened to it, we've read it, we've probably recited them. Every person seems to have in AA anymore today their own idea about this, way this program should be worked. Well, believe me, if we had this many ideas, we'd be in worse shape than we are now. There's only one way to work this program. I would like to give you my conception about what this program means, why it's written the way it is, and what it's supposed to do, and what you and I are supposed to do. Now, I say this, I make this statement as a person who was here before we had this 12-step program. So it ought to have a little more, perhaps, weight or authority to it, because I helped write this program. Now, I'm not waving any flags about this. I just, this is one of these historical things, just one that I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And I was in on the writing of this program, so I do have some definite ideas about these steps. And I hear some people, all oh, people ask you, what, when should I take this tw- these steps? When should I take the first, and do I have to take them in rotation? Do I have to do- Read the steps, it tells very plainly, let me tell you what I think about these steps and what they mean and what they're intended to do. And I hope it will help some of you folks if you need this type of thing. I only talk about fundamentals in AA. I I never did get to be too modern in AA. I don't run for any offices, I am not a politician. And I don't give a hoot for any politics in AA. I'm a guy that believes in fundamentals, and I stick pretty close to them, and I'm probably the happiest guy in AA. I don't have any headaches. And nobody can argue me out of what I'm just too thick-headed to be modern. So let me tell you what I think about this program, and maybe you can stay sober 29 years and have fun doing it. I have no use for a guy staying sober and being miserable about it. That isn't the way to do it. Have fun. I'm younger now than I was 29 years ago, I can guarantee you, because I can do things today I couldn't do then. I know this. Now, originally we started in the Oxford Group. Bill Wilson was an Oxford grouper. Ebbie Thatcher took him in the Oxford Group in New York. Doc Smith, Oxford grouper in Akron. He'd been going to the Oxford group two years and a half before he ever met Bill Wilson. But he is drunk every night. It's a big difference. When Bill was approached by Evie Thatcher back in 35 sometime or 34... Please turn the tape over. Thatcher, back in 35 sometime or 34, Bill stayed sober. He got to Akron, you've read that story, and he met Doc through various means. He finally got together with Doc, and Doc only got drunk once after Bill talked to him. But Doc got interested and got enthused and got working on alcoholics in the Oxford Movement in Akron, Ohio. And being a medical doctor, he had access to the city hospital in Akron. He was on the staff there, and he used to wheedle his drunks into Akron under under, uh, some pretenses. I know that he didn't put any of them in for alcoholism. I know my diagnosis was acute gastritis, and I suppose I had that too, but I, that's what was on my chart. And uh, Doc had that advantage. He could put fellas out of circulation and put them in the hospital and sober them up safely. So the AA went along very well in the Akron area, in the Oxford group. It didn't go too hot in New York for a long time. And uh, Doc was a spiritually motivated man. He was a medical doctor, a man of science, but he was very spiritually motivated. Doc was. He would continuously quote scripture. He had things that he would answer. You'd ask him questions, he'd answer them in scripture to you. One of Doc's favorites, and I, I think it's one of mine, is he used to say... We talk about these first things first, you know. He'd say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is where our first things first came from. Doc used to use this a lot. Well, the Oxford Movement, we were born in that, and the Oxford Movement were a bunch of people trying to live good lives according to spiritual principles. And uh, what they called it was life-changing life changing When we wrote our program of AA, this was a life-changing program. This was not a sobriety program. You don't see the word sobriety in our program. You show me where it is in the twelve steps and I'll eat the magazine. See? This is a life-changing program. And in order to change a person's life, there has to be some things evident. The first thing has to be evident is the need for a change. So, I claim that our program is divided into four phases. So the need is in the first step where we admit our four phases in our program are this way. They are admission, submission, restitution, and construction. The first step we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. That's our first step. That's the admission. Okay. We have a place to start. So what? If we're going to change our lives and we're, our life is unmanageable, we have to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. So the second through the seventh steps are the steps of submission. Read, let me read these second through seventh step. second one says, We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Some people quarrel about that sanity bit. I'm glad that that's in there, boy. That takes me off the hook. I'd hate to think that some of the things I did when I was drinking, I did their acts of a sane man. So I came to believe it. Why did I come to believe it? I came to believe it because of the example of these other men they told me their stories I wanted what they had they told me that our power helped them I wanted that so I wanted to believe it that's how I came to believe it and I think that's how most of us do third step it says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves wait first we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of this God you made a decision when you ask uh, an alcoholic to turn his will and his life over the care of some ethereal creature here of whom he knows very little and probably scared of this is doing a lot you know I think that that step there uh, is a where you separate the men from the boys you either hurt badly enough to do it or you don't but when you make a decision to turn your will and your life over the care of God that's if you don't hurt a whole lot you're not going to do it so then we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I don't think that any alcoholic worthy of the name is capable of doing that step by himself. I think it requires the help of a knowledgeable person or a sponsor. The next step suggests that there was someone at our elbow and helped us with it because it says we admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. This doesn't mean we stand up here in public and undress in front of everybody. This is quite different than that. It says here we admit to God, ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. That's where we make our confession. And it says the next step we were entirely ready, entirely ready, not kind of ready or about to be, it's entirely. An alcoholic does, he's entirely in everything he does. He says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. All of them. All of them. There's some defects of character I'd like to keep very interesting ones the program don't allow for that and this is where a lot of people flop they make up their own program the program don't call for any deviation from this and it says we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings we humbly asked him we didn't make a deal we didn't say God if you'll do this I'll do that like we used to do when we were drunk no we humbly asked him to remove these shortcomings alright that's the that's our second phase that's the admission and submission we have now submitted our will and our lives to the care of God we've actually done this All right. we're in the next phase if we're going into a new life we can't make a new life unless we try to clean up something in the old we can't as a good book says we can't put new wine in old casks in old bottles now we have to make restitution, so the next phase is restitution. It says, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That attitude of willingness to make amends to everybody is what's important, because obviously we can't make amends to everyone. We don't know every person we've harmed, and some people are not available anymore. We just have to leave that to God. The next step says we made a list of all persons, uh, and it says we ma- made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So then our restitution is made. Now I want to make a statement here, and I want you to listen very quiet, very carefully to this statement. Because I made a st- this statement in a group one time and started a riot. We got a lot of this unity we talk about after this. Uh, after we have taken nine steps in AA, you can forget those nine steps, you're done with them. You never have to be concerned about those first nine steps anymore except in two instances. If you resign and resume you're going to have to go all through them again. Or if you're trying to explain this program to a new person you have to know what these nine stand for. But for your own use you never have to use them anymore unless you get drunk unless you quit AA. Remember that. But you must do the nine. And when you have done the nine steps, something has happened to you. Your life has changed. It can't help but change because you admitted that you can't do anything yourself and you have asked God to take these problems and to help you. And it says in a good book, Anything you ask, believing ye shall receive. If you have that type of faith, you are through drinking, you are done with it. But you must take those nine. That should answer a lot of questions about people when they talk about how I should take these steps. They're written in a rotation, purposely. There's a reason why they're coming the way they are. And I've tried to outline this reason as briefly as possible. Now, you've done nine steps. What happens? The last phase of this program is the phase of construction. Here's where we construct the life. The last three steps are the steps we live by. The tenth step says we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Can you imagine a rummy who has not had his life changed admitting anything? He won't even admit it's raining outside, it might involve him in something she admit things good i'll tell you it'd be nice i know that none of you people have ever been in court but if you have if someday if you have time it's your civic duty you should go down and listen to what goes on in these courts someday see what people are doing with your money and with your time you'll see some guy drug, drug up there he's been drunk He's out driving a car. He's got a DWI against him. He's wrecked a couple automobiles. He's gone through a storefront. He's tipped over a milk wagon. He fought the police, and he winds up in jail. And he comes out, and he's out there in the court. They read the charge against him, or all the charges. The judge looks at him. He says, You were drunk. No. Not me. You were drinking. No, not him. After a lot of cajoling, he'll finally break down and he'll admit to having had a couple of beers. You know, there's nobody ever gets in trouble drinking whiskey, but those guys that had a couple of beers, they raise
1: hell.
2: (laughs) Don't ever admit anything. It might involve you. So here it is. We continue to take personal inventory. This is our day by day. This is an important step. This is something, maybe I can tell you how I take mine every day. It might be helpful to someone. Every night when I lie down in bed, the last thing before I go to sleep, I have my little prayer time. I think about my day. And I think about what I've done today. Sometimes I'm not too proud of some of the things I've done today, And and sometimes I am. If I am proud of something I did, I, I give myself credit. You're a good boy today. You did all right there. If I haven't, I owe somebody an apology, I try to do it. I try to take care of that as soon as possible. This is what the tenth step means to me. This keeps those little things from growing into big things. Because it's the little things that kill us, it's not the big things. There's not too many big things happen to any of us. But every day of our life, there's numerous little things that we have to contend with. And those are the things that are really throw us, not the big things. So that tenth step keeps us conscious of how we're conducting ourselves every day and straightening up the thing as we go along. Things won't build up on us that way. It's great insurance. It's a great way to live, really is. You might know that, most of you. Some of you probably don't. Let's get into that eleventh step. What is this step? It's a tremendous step. Why? This eleventh step is a beginning of a prayer life. It teaches us how to begin a prayer life. Listen to this step very carefully. Listen to the wording of it. It's tremendous, this step. It says here, we sought through prayer and meditation. We're seeking something, it says. We sought through prayer and meditation. What's that? What's prayer and meditation? Prayer is talking to God. Listening, uh, meditation is listening to Him. We have to talk and we have to listen. The good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth. What does that suggest to you? I thought so. We sought through prayer and meditation. What are we seeking through prayer and meditation? To establish a conscious contact with God. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. I want to feel that he's here and I can feel him, I can touch him I can talk to him, I can be at one with him a conscious contact just as though I can go over and touch this fellow put my arm around him this is what I want to feel I don't want to feel that my God is way beyond the stars where I can't reach him the step tells me otherwise I must establish this conscious contact with God now it says something else here What does it say? It says, I'm praying for something. What am I praying for? It says, I'm praying only, only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That step doesn't say anything about praying for sobriety. You've already got that. You don't have to pray for sobriety. God has given you sobriety in those first nine steps. You've got it. You're not praying for a new job, a new yacht, or a new wife, or a new husband, or a new home, or anything like that we're only praying for knowledge of God's will what does God want me to do and I want the power to carry it out the good book tells us he will never put anything on us that he doesn't give us the power to perform do you believe that do you have faith you believe that that's the eleventh step that starts us on a prayer life after we get into a prayer life, there's a lot of things we can do later on, but this is our beginning. This is what we need. This is simple for people like you and me, who need such a thing. These The words in these these 200 well-chosen words in our steps are profound, yet so simple. The trouble is most of us try to complicate it so. The last step, here's one for you, this last step, people say to me, they come and ask me. When should a person do 12-step work? For heaven's sake, read the steps. They'll tell you, here's when you should do 12-step work. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. There's a lot of people running around doing what they call 12-step work that ought to be home-knitting. They have no business. they got out there carrying a message they don't have. This program is a tremendous gift to you and I. It's a gift of God. We better, by golly, do what's right by it and with it it puts a responsibility on us. I listened to this psychiatrist this morning talking this afternoon. I've listened to a lot of those guys in 28 years. I've been on committees with them over the years. I have nothing against anybody who's trying to do something. But they are still talking the same jazz that I heard 29 years ago. They're about to do something. hells bells, we've been doing things, and we listen to a lot of this stuff and we'll quit doing things. And we have been listening to a lot of stuff and they s- throwing rocks in our path too. We're depending on other people to do our jobs sometimes. We're re- depending on some remote outfit somewhere or some organization to do things for us that you and I should be doing. I was talking to Dewey Speeds about this today. Dewey remembers, he come in this thing many years ago and they trained him right. He might be an SO something around here to some of your people. But you ain't kidding him much about AA. Because he was brought in the hard way. And he had some tough taskmasters. And he got the benefit of it. And a lot of people profited thereby. We're talking about this. There's things going on in this fellowship you and i better be pretty smart about if we think we're so all fired smart we better use some of it in protecting what we have here because our efficiency is going to is diminishing in some areas because we're depending on someone else to do the job you and i should be doing there is no substitute for man to man work and contact in aa Every individ- person that comes into this fellowship requires individual attention. Alcoholics are different than other people, and don't ever let anybody kid you that they're not. I hear people say, ah, oh, we're just like everybody. I hate to hear anybody say that we're different. Well, believe me, we are different, and I'll tell you why. I probably know more alcoholics than anybody alive. I know them all over the country and out of the country. And I know some of them very intimately, many of them. And I've noticed something about alcoholics. I didn't read this in books either. I've learned this by personal contact with them. The alcoholic is a type. And I'll tell you something else, everybody can't be an alcoholic. A lot of people don't have sense enough. And I don't care how much drinking some people do, they'll never make this, they'll never be an alki. They can't be it. I don't care what. You have to be made a certain way, or put together a certain way, or chosen for something to be an alcoholic. Now, alcoholics all have definite characteristics that are alike. I've never seen an alcoholic yet worthy of the name. I'm not talking about just ordinary drunks. There's a lot of drunks, there's a lot of alcoholics. Every alcoholic's a drunk, but every drunk is not an alcoholic. I've been around a lot of drunks when I was on the skids that are not alcoholics. I drank with a lot of drunks back in WPA days who were not alcoholics. They drank as much as I did, they're not Alkies. Alky is different. I was, I remember one instance, just as an example of this, I don't mind staying here if you don't. <coughs> I remember years ago when I was drinking with some of the jugheads that were on WPA. I hadn't seen them in many years. I came into, I disappeared, went on the bum, came back, got into AA, and I was sober for some years. This was about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. I got dreadfully ill. I, I had a series of five throat operations in different cancer clinics and. I was between operations at this one time and I went downtown. I was living in Cleveland at that time and I went down to see the ball game at the lakefront. I wanted to see the Yankees play. I wanted to see Joe DiMaggio and I went down there and on the way down I ran right smack dab into five of these guys who I used to drink with in WPA days. These fellas and I had been arrested together, jugged together. One night we stole a new police car I mean, we were... That's, that's the kind of gang they were. And we scrounged and we stole. We do all kinds of things. And these fellows drank as much as I did. And here I ran smack dabbing them. I hadn't seen them in years. I'd been sober for so many years by that time. And they said, Snyder, you old goat, we thought you were dead long ago. Now here I am. He says, come in and have a drink. So I stopped in one of those saloons there in Superior Street on the way down to the stadium and I watched those guys first thing I noticed about them they were all dressed up they had their sport shirts on and their sport trousers and two-tone shoes and they were all dolled up with pongee shirts and the whole bit and each one of those guys had a box seat ticket for the ball game stuck in his pocket here say cost about three bucks a piece and they got in that saloon and they were throwing them in with two hands just like they used to when I drank with them 15 to 16 years before and I watched this performance, and they got through and they went on their merry way to the ball game. And I looked at this bunch, you think they're alcoholics? If they'd been alcoholics, if would that had been me, I wouldn't have had that Ponji shirt on in the first place, and I know I wouldn't have been blowing three or four dollars for a box seat to a ball game, not by a jugful. I hear those fellas, after all these years, they're still able to drink. They're back in business, making money, and they're in society. Since I had seen them last, I wound up on the bum. I lost everything in the world, and I started a new life completely. All these years. And all it would take for me is to take one drink with those apes. And they could still drink like this, and I'd be back there on the waterfront. It's as simple as it is. They're not alcoholics. I've never met an alcoholic in my life who was not a high-strung individual. I've never met one who is not very, a very quick thinker. You don't find any alcoholics who are deep thinkers. That's why you very seldom find these pipe smokers. Once in a while you find a freak in AA who smokes a pipe, but you'll find a freak anywhere. But they eat these cigarettes. They smoke them three of them at a time. They don't know it. I'm a salesman And when I walk into some guy's office And he's smoking a pipe I turn right around and walk out I'll starve to death Before this guy could ever make up his mind to do anything But the rummy He'll do something You can bet on that He's the busiest guy in the world He's doing something The alcoholic is a very sensitive soul. He's always going around looking for somebody to hurt his feelings. (laughs) He's an extremist. He never does anything by halfway measures. It's whole hog or nothing with a rummy. He's an idealist. And he's a great guy has yes, Deep feeling. Do you know why we succeed with alcoholics and all these learned people can't? You know why? It's very simple. And these people will never learn, they'll never acknowledge this. I've talked to umstein hundred psychiatrists, psychologists and social workers and what have you and people who are interested in, in this alcoholic problem and I try to point this out to them and they look at me like I'm something from Mars. I say, "Listen, you go ahead. We've got the same bloody thing down in Florida. We've got a program down there that should be anything in the world. We've got a beautiful spot that we can put alcoholics. They go down there for 28 days, and it's like, it's like a summer resort. It's beautiful. I only know of two people who ever came out of that place. in the years it's been running, whoever stayed sober, And there's been thousands of them go down there. Why? They give them lectures. They show them moving pictures of what happens to the liver, <laughs> Their stomach. They promise them they're going to lose their job if they keep drinking. They promise them they're going to lose their family. They're going to lose a lot of things. That's good. They all promised me that years ago, and it all happened, too. <laughs> but they give them all this logic and common sense, and they give them what they call therapy, group therapy. They get a bunch of failures together that never have stayed sober telling each other how they should do it. This is great. So you know what difference there is in our fellowship and in all these rehabilitation plans by these experts? They don't know this and you can't tell them. But an alcoholic doesn't do things by logic and common sense. He does things by feeling. Until he feels a certain way, he's not about to do anything. And when he feels, he acts. He's an emotional person. And unless we work with him through his emotions, there's no chance of ever moving an alcoholic. That's why they said in the old Oxford group, man's extremity is God's opportunity. When you feel you're done, they talk in the AA, bottom, you're ready. You have to feel a certain way same way in our steps if you don't feel a certain way you're not going to take that third step you're not going to give up your will to God unless you feel really defeated when you feel that you want something really badly that's what you'll get when we go out to see an alcoholic why do the amateurs succeed why when we go out I go out and call on this chap he's in despair what do I have to do with him what's my job when I go out to see him on a 12 step call The first thing I have to do with him is make him believe in me. He has to have confidence in me. He has to believe me. Then I must make him want what I have. This BS I hear about attraction and promotion, whoever invented that? This is the greatest promotion job in the world and you better believe it. Who's going to be attracted to come to a bunch of drunks? This is a lot of hogwash. The attraction comes after we are meet and are together. But no drunk way out here is going to read some newspaper and be attracted to us or think that because somebody says there's a bunch of, fine of drunks down here that are sober, go meet them. He ain't coming down here. This is a sales job. I can say this without fear of any criticism because, brothers and sisters, when I came in this thing, I had to sell this. If I didn't, there wouldn't be any guys here. I wouldn't have had any group in Cleveland. I got some guys from Cleveland will tell you this. They know me. They know what happened. They were in soon enough after I came in to know this. I was out. I bothered everybody about this thing. I went on this bar stool hopping and dragging guys out of saloons and out of this and out of that. I did everything, tried to get my first rummy. I never felt I'd really belong to this fellowship till I'd sponsored someone. And it took me a long, long time before I got my first man, too. And when I did, I got him because I had a message to carry. That's why it took me seven long months of fruitless effort and disappointments before I got my first man in AA. Seven months. And I talked to hundreds of them but why? What's my job when I come out there? I feel something for that guy. I am not a professional, but I have a feeling for him, that guy or that gal that I'm out there to work on. And I have a feeling for them that I have for nobody else. And I don't care who he is or how, what condition he's in or what side of the tracks he came from. Anything about that. It means nothing to me. He's an alcoholic, There's something that goes between us. And this happens so many times. We were talking about this last night. I'm invited to go out to different places to make talks, like I'm here. I can remember a couple instances that happened just this summer, this year. I went to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Whoever heard of that place? You take four planes from Tampa, and you wind up in... The end of the line up in Regina, that's as far as they go. From that point on you take dog teams, I guess. And I don't know a soul in Moose Jaw or Regina or any place else. But they asked me to come up and I went up. I got off this plane on Friday night along with 60 or 70 other guys. All these salesmen were going home on Friday night and the plane was full of men. And I walk up into that, into that airport and all these 60 or 70 other guys are walking along with me and those AAs are standing up there waiting for me why didn't they walk up to one of those other 60 or 70 but they say, there he is <laughs> they know me and I didn't have any rose in my hair either they don't know me from Adam the same thing happened down in Kansas City this summer I could hear him holler way back there he is, there he is in the way back here Why is this? Why do they recognize me? Why when you walk down the street sometimes, some panhandler, he'll pass 15 people and bingo. He'll put the arm on you. You can't tell me that there isn't something between us that other people don't experience. I know better than this. I've had years and years of it. And it happens all the time. I don't have to smell them to tell them. I feel them. And you do too. And this is our big secret as a feeling that we have for each other. and this love, and this affection, and this regard. This is a love that don't quit. I was indoctrinated properly in AA by my sponsor and the people who preceded me. I was taught that this is my first responsibility and my only thing in life was to help other people in this regard. Other alcoholics. They told me I had a talent to do this, and I believed it. And they told me I better exercise this talent. And they told me the story, the parable of the talents. And they told me what would happen if I didn't use my talent, I would lose it. So far, I have tried my best to use it. So far, I'm having a good time out of life. I hope to continue. This is the greatest fellowship in the world. There's nothing like it. And it's a fellowship, it's not based on promises, it's not based on any type of oaths we have to take, it's not based on any common sense or anything else. Everything in AA is asked backwards to everything in in common sense. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, uh, some people are trying to put common sense into AA. Watch out for those guys. One thing that always bugs me in AA is I see that unity. I remember the first unity we had is when we broke out of the Oxford group. Brother, what a riot. I remember the next unity I was connected with was when we had our first split in Cleveland. We didn't split in two groups, we split in three. This was real unity. Finally some other guys get unified and they think they can run the group better than everybody else and bingo away we go again that's why we have thousands of groups a lot of this stuff that we read about think about this sometime and see how ridiculous some of this stuff is that they're trying to hand us this is a simple program i have tried to go into the program here tonight our program of twelve steps i've told you what the steps mean what they'll do for us what they'll do for you as an individual all we have to do is accept them work them live with them, and be happy. As I said before, if it's hard, you're not doing it right. This is an easy program. It has to be easy because none of us are able to cope with anything tough when we get here. We've we've run out of gas when we get here. We have to have something easy. And it's easy to turn this whole matter over to God and do our part and live and have a swell life together. Thank you very much for coming.